sacrifice to God, doesn't it? And that's why God has given us the Ten Commandments. Think of them as a prescription, that God is using these to diagnose our problem and to prescribe a remedy, a course of action to help us build healthier, stronger lives and homes. And last week, we looked at the first of these Ten Commandments, which tells us that we are to worship the Lord only and have no other gods before Him. In other words, we have to make room for God in our lives to keep Him in first place, His rightful place. God deserves and desires to sit alone on the throne of your heart. He deserves to be in the driver's seat of your life. And we looked at two specific ways that we can do that with our time and with our money. Two of the greatest indicators of what's really important to us is how do we spend our time and how do we spend our money. We looked at that last week. And today we move on to the second commandment. And if you'll turn to Exodus chapter 20 and look with me at verses 4 through 6, you'll notice that the second commandment and the fourth commandment are the two longest commandments. God has a lot to say about uh, not having any idols and about keeping the Sabbath day. And we'll, we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But there in verse 4, God says, You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The second commandment, as you, as you might imagine, is closely connected to the first commandment. God says we're to worship Him only, have no other gods. The second commandment, He, he kind of expands on that and talks about not having any idols, not worshiping anything, made it in a form of anything under heaven or, or on the earth. And some traditions even treat these two as one single commandment. We do not. We look at them as two. But remember what I said last week, that really the, the other nine commandments are there just to help us keep the first one. The first commandment is the commandment. We are to love the Lord our God with everything that we are, with everything that we have. And, and commandments 2 through 10 just help us do that. And so the second commandment is especially uh, connected very, very deeply to that first one. The first commandment says to worship and serve God only. The second commandment gives us kind of two points to expand on that. Don't idolize anything and worship God for who He is. Let's look at those this morning. First, it tells us don't idolize anything. Now, what is an idol? You know, Ben talked a little bit about that. An idol is anything or anyone that dominates our affection, that demands our allegiance, that determines our self-worth. In other words, it's something that takes God's rightful place on the throne of our lives. And so, whenever we value something as much as or more than we value God, what have we done? We've idolized it. We've taken that and made it into an idol. Maybe what you idolize is sitting in your garage or in the parking lot this morning. Or maybe it's at, uh, at the marina up at the lake. Some people, their idols, they keep in safety deposit boxes. Other people spend hours in the gym toning and shaping their idol or in the mirror admiring it. And other idols are less tangible but just as real. Reputation, pleasure, success, security. 
You know, all cultures throughout history have had idols. I mean, if you study history, you, you know, talk to archaeologists. I mean, almost every culture that, it, that they study has some kind of an idol. It might be a statue, a little statue of a god or a goddess that they've made. And when you think about that, it makes sense because God created us in His image to spend our entire lives and all of eternity in His presence. But because of our sin, because of our rebelliousness against God, humanity was banished from the garden of God's presence. And ever since then, people have been trying to get back to the garden. We have a God-shaped hole in each of our hearts. And people spend their lives desperately trying to fill that void in their lives. We, We were made for worship. The tragedy, though, is that fallen humanity has tried to fill that void with things. We try to connect with our Creator by worshiping His creation instead of Him. Now, the culture into which God's people that He set free from Egypt, you know, and here they are at Mount Sinai when He gives them the Ten Commandments. They're on their way across the wilderness to the Promised Land. And God warns them that when they get there, the cultures that are already there are pagan they worship idols. And, and, and primarily, four idols would become a problem for the people of Israel. Baal and Asherah were consorts with each other. They were the fertility gods. We could think of them as the gods of sex and the gods of wealth. And then there was Molech and Chemosh, who were the gods of violence and military conquest. And in those days, their idols were made out of stone or they were made out of clay or wood, maybe covered with gold or, or bronze. And our culture here in America, we, we don't necessarily worship those kinds of objects. You know, we, you, may, you probably don't have, probably don't have some little statue in your house you're guilty of bowing down to, right? I mean, I think that's probably true for most of us in here. But we worship people, ideas. Images. We don't have metal images that we worship. We have mental images that we tend to worship. But it's the same unholy trinity of the Canaanite gods that we struggle with here. It's sex, money, and power at any cost, even if that means violence and death. And it's difficult to raise our children in an environment where society is saying that sex, money, and power are the important things that we should focus on. When we're trying to say, no, that's not the right way. There's a better way. Life is better than death. Love is more than sex. And it's more blessed to give than receive. We're trying to combat the messages of the world with that message. And parents, you know that's not easy. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God warned the children of Israel. He said, watch yourselves very carefully so that you do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol. And then he goes on to say in verse 23, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that He made with you. Do not make yourselves idols. Twice here God warns them to be very careful that they don't fall to idolatry. God knows our tendency to turn from Him, the Creator, from Him who is real and who is true, and we turn to what is false and what is imaginary. We we reject the God who made us in His image so that we can fashion gods in our own image. 
And so we need to understand this morning and teach our children the dangerous delusion of idolatry and what it can do to us. And the first thing that idols will always do is disappoint. Idols will always disappoint us. They, they, they promise more than they can ever deliver. In Jeremiah ten fourteen, it says, "...the whole human race is foolish and has no knowledge." The craftsmen are disgraced by the idols they make, for their carefully shaped works are a fraud. Their idols have no breath or power. Idols have no life. They have no power. All they can do is make big promises that they can never keep. The Canaanite gods promised to make the fields fertile. They promised to make people wealthy. They promised to give the nations victory over their enemies. But these gods were powerless to do any such thing. Now, last Sunday night, as we all know, was the Super Bowl. The night that millions of Americans tune in on their TVs to watch commercials interrupted by football, right? I mean, it's, everybody talks about the commercials the next day, right? No matter who wins or loses, everybody talks about the commercials. Now, think about those commercials. Think about all the promises that those advertisements made. You know, promises like, uh, wear our label and you'll be popular and successful. Eat our chips or drink our soda and you'll be cool or hot, depending on whether it's Mountain Dew or Doritos, right? I mean, it's one or the other. Drink our beer and life doesn't get any better than this. Drive our Jeep and have the adventure of a lifetime. You know, dinosaurs will chase you, that kind of thing. And that doesn't happen. You get in a Jeep, dinosaurs not going to chase you, all right? So, so these things promise things that they can never keep. And anytime we put a person, a thing, a product, or an idea in the place of God, anytime that we expect someone else to solve our problems or to make us happy, we're going to be disappointed. Idols will always disappoint you. The second thing is idols will dominate you. They dominate us. The irony of idolatry is that the idols end up enslaving us. Remember last week, one of the reasons that we said God deserves first place in your life is because He bought you. Jesus Christ paid the ultimate price to redeem you from slavery to sin that you might live in true freedom. And before God gave that first commandment, there at the beginning of, of, of Exodus chapter 20, God reminds them, I am the Lord your God who set you free from slavery in Egypt. Not Baal. Not Asherah, not Moloch. See, God knows that whenever people turn to gods of their own making, it quickly becomes an oppressive, debased system of religious bondage. And that's what happens again and again and again throughout the Old Testament and really throughout human history. 1 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul says, You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Now, the Greek word that's translated there as influenced and led astray, it's one Greek word. It's the same word that was used to describe Jesus when He was taken away to be crucified. So that word means to be captured and to be led away someplace you don't want to go. And Paul says that that's the inevitable outcome. When we love something more than God, it will begin to control you. 
like an addiction. It will exert such control over your heart and over your mind. I mean, you think about it. People who idolize success and career and achievement, they become addicted to work. They become workaholics. People become addicted to sex and lust or to sports or to shopping or to gambling or to Facebook or you name it. Whatever it may be, idols will eventually run your life. You think that you own it, but really, it ends up owning you. Think of those Old Testament idols. They started out promising a lot and not really asking for much in return. But over time, people ended up sacrificing their sexual purity and their marital integrity through these cult prostitute practices to worship Baal and Asherah just so that the rains would come and bring uh, fertile crops. But guess what? The rains didn't come. The droughts persisted. They, 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 they served the gods of Molech and Shemosh, wanting military victory over their enemies to the point that they began to actually sacrifice their children, burning them alive on altars. And we shudder at that image today. But how many men have sacrificed their families on the altars of career and success? How many marriages have been sacrificed on the altar of a one-night stand, of lustful pornography. See, the rituals may be different, but today's idols still have the power to dominate our lives, and they demand more and more sacrifices from us, all the while their payout is less and less. Idols will begin to control you. Secondly, they'll lead you astray, Paul says. See, when something takes God's place, you're always going to lose your perspective. You're going to forget what's really important in your life. The alluring promotion will cause you to neglect your family at a crucial time in your kids' lives. The promise of fame compromises our integrity. Convictions go out the door to make room for more profits. Based on gaining someone's approval, or when you allow someone to choose for you what is right and wrong, guess what? You've made that person an idol. And we have to watch out because idols not only begin to replace God in our life, they begin to replace our family. They begin to replace our values. They begin to replace our conviction. They begin to replace the very happiness they promise to give us. Idols will disappoint. Idols will dominate. And idols will deform. They will deform us. They will change you and warp you until you lose those unique qualities that God shaped you to be uniquely who you are. There's an undeniable spiritual law. You become what you value most. What takes first place in your life, that thing that you worship, that's what you begin to look like. In Psalm 115, the psalmist writes, But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. We shape idols that end up shaping us. And that's why we better wake up and make room for God in our lives to allow Him to be our Lord and Savior, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to set our treasures in heaven because where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be so that we can be shaped by heaven's values and we can become conformed to the image of Christ, not 
conform to the ways of the world? What idols in your life this morning need to be torn down and destroyed? What is dominating your life and shaping your perspective and values around the world's ways? As Ben mentioned, we're approaching the season of Lent. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And, and, and many people during that time, you know, try to give up something. You, know, you might hear people say, well, what are you giving up for Lent? And I want to challenge you, if you're going to do that, don't just give up chocolate. Don't just give up soda, although some of us might need to do that. I want you to stop and think for a moment. What do you need to give up? What is it that you're holding on to that's keeping you from being all God wants you to be? Maybe it's a destructive relationship. Maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe it's a hobby that's taking up too much of your time and your focus. What idol in your life do you need to spend the next 40 days tearing down? That's the first half of this commandment. Don't idolize anything. But the second half that's implied there that I think we sometimes miss out on is that we are to worship God for who He is. Jesus once said that God is looking for the kind of worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, what does it mean to worship God in truth? It means to worship God for who He is. Worship God for who He is, not who we want Him to be. It means that we don't try to limit God. We don't try to put God in a box. We don't arrogantly think that we've got God all figured out. As bad as it is to worship a false God, it's just as bad to worship God falsely. You hear me? As bad as it is to worship a false God, it's just as bad to worship God falsely. You see, when God said, don't make a graven image... He wasn't just talking about a false gods. He was also talking about of Himself. God didn't want Israel to try to capture Him in a physical form. See, that's what Aaron does. Remember when Aaron makes the golden calf? Right? Moses is up on the mountain. He's been up there too long, and so the people get a little antsy. And Aaron says, well, give me all your gold jewelry. He melts it down. He makes this golden calf. And you know what he says about that calf? He says, this is the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. He didn't say it was Baal. He didn't say it was Molech. He said, this cow is the Lord your God. He tried to capture the infinite, almighty God in the form of a golden calf. And God didn't want them to do that because it would inherently limit their image and understanding of God. It would limit their fear and their awe for God. They would begin to think that that image of God was God itself. And you know, we struggle with that same tendency today. We often confuse God with our words about God, with our worship styles and preferences, with even this physical space. We even talk about this as God's house. And parents, maybe you've been guilty of telling your kids, you know, don't run in God's house. You know, don't lie in God's house. As if God is somehow only here, and if you lie out there, it's okay, He won't know. We end up idolizing even this space. We have to be careful that we are worshiping God as He really is, not reshaping Him in our image according to our whims. I want to share with you three dangers we have to avoid if we're to worship God in truth for who He really is. The first one is don't limit God's location. Like I said, God is not held up in this building. 
God is not found in a statue. God is not bound to a book that you can put on the shelf and walk away from. See, Israel became guilty of thinking that God only lived in the temple in Jerusalem. And if they're away from Jerusalem, somehow God wasn't powerful. God wasn't with them. They began to think that God was in this golden ark. And if they didn't take the Ark of the Covenant out with them in battle, then God wasn't going with them in battle. Why do we do that? Why do we continue this day to confine God to a box? I think it's so that we can feel like we can just leave Him if we don't want Him to be around. We fool ourselves into believing that God maybe can't see what we're doing on a Friday night. We live as if God only cares about what we say and do when we're in this building on a Sunday. And when we leave church, we just shut the door and God can't mess up what we want to do during the week. But we all know down deep inside that's not true, is it? That's not how any of this works. God is in all places at all times. He sees and hears and knows everything we say and do and think. We cannot limit God and we cannot keep Him at arm's length. But the second danger of idolatry is is that we're going to take away God's glory. Sometimes we're guilty of trying to whittle God down to size. We want a less imposing God. A smaller, less powerful God can't threaten our comfortable lifestyles, can He? We sometimes want to make God more convenient, more manageable. We like to think of Him more as a kindly old grandfather we can run to when we want to treat instead of the Holy Almighty Father in heaven who will discipline us when we disobey. I often hear people say, well, my idea of God is, or they say the God that I know is, as if there's some authority on the Almighty and they can just decide how God is. It's like the little girl who was drawing a picture of God in Sunday school and she told her teacher, she said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the the teacher said, well, you know, Sally, God doesn't, nobody knows what God looks like. And she said, well, they will when I'm done. (laughs) And that's cute, and we laugh when it's a little girl. But when adults are doing that, it's idolatry. It's heresy. We make God in our image so that we can justify our lifestyles. That's a cafeteria approach to God. We pick and choose the things we like about God and we leave behind the rest. And that's how we end up with people in our culture saying that that God is love and He would never be judgmental and He would never punish anyone and would certainly never send anyone to hell. You hear people talk about, well, we like the God of Jesus because He's all grace and forgiveness, but we don't like this wrathful God of the Old Testament. And what they do is they fail, they tragically fail to grasp the beauty of having a loving and just God, a God who loves us so much that He actively works against anything that would harm us or keep us from Him. That is a God who is loving and holy, a God who is just. Instead, they take the parts of the Bible they don't like and they throw it out and reshape God according to their image, a God who winks at immorality, who doesn't care what people do with their bodies. They make God like them. But guess what? God will not remold Himself for us. God will not let us reshape Him. God wants to reshape us into His image. And the other thing we have to try not to do is control God. See, a lot of people want a God they can manipulate. It's like the little boy who told his mom he wanted a new bicycle for Christmas. And she said, well, son, why don't you just pray about that? So he decided he'd write a letter to Jesus. He said, dear Jesus, I want a new bicycle, and I've been perfect this past year. Well, he knew that wasn't true. So he tore that up and threw it in the trash. 
And he wrote a letter and said, Dear Jesus, it's, I've been good most of the time. And he knew that wasn't really true either, so he threw that away. And he said, Dear Jesus, I want to be a good boy. And he thought about that again and thought, well, that's not much fun. So he threw that away. And he went to the living room. He grabbed Mary from the nativity, wrapped her in a towel, hid her under the bed, and wrote, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. <laughs> again, we do the same thing. We try to manipulate God. God, you owe me this. God, I deserve this. Or we might say, God, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. But we can't make demands of God. We can't control or manipulate God. He's not a genie who's obligated to fulfill our wishes. He isn't here to serve us. We're here to serve Him. So, when we make room for God in our lives, in our homes, when we keep God first, when we have no other gods, no idols before Him, very quickly, I'm going to wrap up with this. Worshiping God for who He truthfully is does three things for us. Instead of being disappointed, we'll be delighted. When we put God first in our life, and our families, when we love Him with all that we are and all that we have, God says we will experience all the fulfillment in life that we've been looking for in all the wrong places. Romans 10.11 says, For the Scriptures tell us that no one who believes in Christ will ever be disappointed. Jesus never disappoints. Accept no substitutes. You can't beat the real thing. You really can't. Also, instead of being dominated, we worship God truthfully for who He is, we'll be delivered. See, when you keep God in the driver's seat of your family and your life, the Bible says you're going to experience freedom like you've never known. Jesus said in John 8, 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. A family who puts God first will be free from worry of the approval of others, free from the guilt and regret of past sins and mistakes, free to become the people that God created and saved and is shaping you to be. And instead of being deformed, we'll be conformed to the image of Christ. Because what you worship and what you value most is what you'll end up looking like. People begin to be shaped into the image of what they worship. They take on those values, those worldviews, those priorities. You know, it's not easy building a family on the values of God when everything in society is making opposite claims and promises. And so how do we know? How do we know what God is like? How do we know how to truthfully worship Him as He is? We look to Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When one of His disciples asked Him what God was like, Jesus said, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. It's that clear. When you look at Jesus, you see who God is. You see what He's like. And the closer you get to Jesus the more you'll begin to look like your Father in heaven. The more that family resemblance will begin to come out in your life. If you want to build a stronger, healthier family, you really have to settle two things. First, make God the number one priority in your life. And secondly, get to know Jesus. You know, it's, it's very easy to, to think about those Ten Commandments on those two tablets and I was joking with, with a friend the other day, you know, about this sermon series, and he said, oh, so basically it's just take two tablets and call me in the morning. Get it? Ah, 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 ah. Yeah. 
But some people think that way. They think, okay, great, David's going to give me ten steps to building the perfect family. If I just do these ten things, I've got it made. Wrong. I hate to break it to you, but guess what? You're not going to keep these ten commandments. You're not going to do it. You're going to fail. That's why Jesus Christ came and died on the cross. Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life that we can't live. And He died for our sins. If you want to build a stronger, healthier family, it starts with having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know Him this morning? I hope that you'll come and let me share with you how today you can have your sins washed away, you can be given a fresh start, and you can begin to build a stronger family. Our instrumentalists are going to come up.